That's a, that's a hymn I think I could sing every Sunday. I love that hymn. Behold our God. Take your Bibles this morning. Yep, kids, you can be dismissed. Judah, keep all those girls in line. Take your Bibles this morning to the passage that Doc read for us. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. And we're going to look through uh, verse... 31, or chapter 11, verse 1 this morning. Now, you know, some of you are like, why would you go with just the first verse? You know that these chapter divisions in these verses are just, they're man-made things, right? You know, it's not an issue for us. And I believe that um, chapter 11 and verse 1 actually is part of the same thought here as chapter 23, uh, this last paragraph or so. And so we include it together. And this morning, uh, I want to talk to you about a governing or our governing principle in life. I think that's what we see out of this text here. So that's what we're going to talk about. I want to ask you this morning, um, how would you define the word glory? How would you define it? What comes to mind? I think there are multiple ways. I mean, what are some other words that you think of? What are some things? That, I think there's multiple ways. And I think if I was to ask you right now to just say, if I was to ask, how would you define it? You know, we have this group of folks in this room, or maybe if you're listening online, you have a word that comes to your mind. I think that we would have just as many different ways to define it as there are people. It's something that might be a little difficult, actually, to define in some cases. Well, let me ask you this. When you think about general examples or illustrations of glory, things that are glorious, what do you think of? Sunsets, gorgeous sunsets, or maybe that postcard type of landscape scene, just really beautiful types of things. And when you see those things, what do you think? You think, ah, oh, that's glorious. It's magnificent. It's wonderful. Or maybe, if you're a sport nut like I am, and it's March, and of course when March comes, that means one of my favorite times of the year, March Madness. Maybe you think of all of the wonderful events and games of the past Maybe one of them for you is the 1960-1961 Buckeyes team that finished the year in the AP poll number one. They were undefeated in the Big Ten, and it featured people like Bobby Knight on the team, Jerry Lucas, and who, anybody else know the other big name? Havlicek, right? Others, there were others. I mean, just a really who's who for Hall of Fame kind of lineup. You think, man, that was a glorious, magnificent team. Or if you think about, in keeping with the basketball illustration, everybody, the greatest player in the world to play basketball ever had, what was his name? Oh, I can't believe you said that. He hit his head on the way in. No, he's being a faithful Ohioan, right? No, Michael Jordan, right? I mean, Michael is the most magnificent player ever. And if, you're, if you disagree, you have every right to be wrong, but... We think of, whether it's an athletic event or we think of a, sun, a, a, sunshine, a sunrise, a sunset or something like that, 
These things are magnificent. And we can define those things, can't we? Like we have concrete pictures of them. We, we, can, we can explain those to other people. But let me ask you this. When it comes to the glory of God, how would you define that? I mean, honestly, we've all heard, and if you've been a Christian for very long, you've heard this more than others, but you've all heard about the glory of God. I mean, you hear people say, hey, this is, this is the glory of God, or we should glorify God, or we should, uh, we should live for the glory of God, or we should display the glory of God, or we, we've heard this, this phrase, the glory of God, like a billion times, haven't we, as believers? We've heard this all the time. But how would you define it? I mean, if like somebody heard this term, the glory of God, that wasn't a churched Christian type of person, how would you explain it? How would you say, if they said to you, what do you mean the glory of God? Would you be like, uh, mm, uh, what, uh, what? You know what it is. It's, what's the glory? Oh, that's easy to find. The glory of God is, is like, it's his glory. Well, you can't use the same word to define it. I think when we, when we talk about the glory of God, it's not easy. It's easier when you talk about Michael, right? Because you think Michael J- Jordan, he was great at <laughs> Jackson. If you think about Michael Jordan, he was great at one thing, right? He was specifically great at one thing. But with God and who God is, it's, he's not just good or he's not just about or he's not just excellent at one thing. As a matter of fact, like the Bible says, God is Love. I mean, he is it. What does that mean? I think it's hard to comprehend it. Hard to comprehend the glory of God, all of who he is, let alone define it. And we're not the only ones. We're not the only We're in good company when it comes to the, uh, a hard time to def, you know, defining the glory of God. Let me, let me share an illustration from Scripture, Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel is writing in his gospel in, about 2,600 years ago, and it's in chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 1. And then he, what he does is, is God allows him to see some sort of manifestation of his glory. And so what Ezekiel does is he starts in chapter 1, he, in verse 4, all the way to verse 28. So a good couple paragraphs. Ezekiel tries to, tries to he's able to see the glory of God, and then he, he records it. He, he records what he sees, this glorious God. And this is what he says in, in, in ver, from verse 4 to verse 28. This is what he says to kind of sum it up. He says this, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And he says, when I saw it, I fell on my face. Ezekiel had been allowed to see something of the glory of God. And he says, this was the likeness of it. In other words, he didn't say, this is that. Here's how you can specifically define it. He just said, man, this is what it's like. As a matter of fact, he uses the word likeness and appearance 20 times from 4 to 28 to explain the glory of God. The point is this. He just saw a form of it, an expression of it. And he couldn't even really comprehend that. He uses the word likeness and appearance. 
When I ask you what the, or to describe the glory of God, to define it, did you have a definition ready to go? And I think that if you did, there would be a hundred different definitions here this morning. Because it's not easy. Try this. Think about God's glorious love. I mean, we all appreciate his love, don't we? And his glorious love. Go, go ahead and try to define God's love. Just, just try to define it. Some of you would go to 1 Corinthians 13, which we're going to be in here, uh, we'll be in in a month or so. God is patient. God is kind. God's long-suffering. He's, his love is gentle. All of these sorts of things, right? Some of you would say that, yeah, he, he, it looks like that. You know, that's God's love. You're describing it, right? You're describing it. And, and then also you would say, well, um, it's not just those things. It's, um, it's not just feelings and actions. It's, or, or it's feelings and it's actions, not just sentiment. You would say, yeah, it's, it does things. His love does things like saves and rescues and, you know. And, and you would be right. But here's the point. When you think about God's love, when you try to define God's love, you can, can't you, up to a certain point. But you really can't exhaust your understanding of God's love or your explanation of God's love, can you? We can know God's love, and we can. And we can experience it. But it really is so much more than we can know, isn't it? I mean, his love is beyond comprehension. It's knowable, it's understandable, but yet it's beyond comprehension. I mean, when you start thinking about why does God love you? I mean, I have a hard time of that with myself. Why would God love me? I'm like, I know me. I know me. Why would he love me? Or think about when did God start loving me? He didn't start loving me. He just always had. That's mind-blown, right? I mean, we can know some things about God's love. We can experience it, but we can't really fully comprehend it. Take his holiness, for example. Take his graciousness. All of these things that we know about who God is, all of those things, all of these things are God. They're very part of him, inseparable parts of who he is. These things make up this, not make up, like he's some sort of component or composite. He is all of these things. God is glorious. And it's a glory that's way beyond our comprehension. And so that's why I think it's hard. I think that's why Ezekiel said, this is what it's like. Because it's so much more than we could even ask or think or comprehend or any of those things. Because, friends, God is amazing, is he not? Is he not magnificent beyond all comprehension? And yet that glory of God, how, so, that, so then how would, we, how would we define it? And this is how I define God's glory. Right? Ready? This is going to, you're going to be... T- it's going to be totally earth-shattering to you, okay? You're going to want to write this down. You're going to want to post it on all your social medias because it's groundbreaking. It's, I make this word up. 
God's glory is God's wow-ness. See how technical, technically Greek that is? But really, God's glory is his wow-ness. It's, I mean, we've had things in our life where we go, wow. Whether it's a shot by a basketball player, whether it's a, I mean, just whatever. A sunset, we go, wow. But God is so much, his wow-ness is way beyond, isn't it? And that, my friends, is what we read today as the dominant theme in verse 31. The Bible says there in verse 31, whether therefore you eat or whatever you, or drink or whatever you do in life, do all for the glory of God. That verse, that verse identifies the governing principle in our, of our lives, the glory of God, whether we, the mundane things like eating and drinking, those, everything we do in life should be to point to this wowness, this magni- undescribable magnificence of who God is. And what we read out of this passage is we're going to see three really simple things out of this passage this morning. The first thing that we're going to see from this passage of this governing principle, well, there you're going to see all three at one time. Hmm. I guess I didn't edit that right. Very first thing that you're going to see is that we should know to, or, or is that God's glory is the governing pr- principle in every situation of our life. God's glory is the governing principle in every situation of our life. For instance, we read in this text, keeping with the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 1, this should have been the governing principle for this situation in this uh, situation in the church here. Meaning, this is what should have happened. These Corinthians should have loved their brothers and their sisters. They should have wanted them to not stumble. Chapter 8, remember? Chapter, I'm putting all this together. Chapter 8, love your brothers and your sisters. Why? Why would we have to, or why should we love our sisters? Because love is rooted in and it reflects the glory of God. Chapter 8. It should have been their governing principle in every situation, including this one. It, they're, they're, um, they should have been selfless, and they should have given up their rights, chapter 9. Why? Because that unselfishness reflects the glory of God, specifically in the person and the work of Jesus, who was totally unselfish. They they should have fought against, and they should have uh, they should flee temptations, the temptations they had in their life, and not given into the idolatry. Chapter ten. Why? Because the ability that they would have to obey that magnifies the glory of the Lord. Hey, look, people would be like, Hey, look, they're not giving over to idolatry. They're not giving into this. They're fleeing temptations, not just that temptation, but the other temptations, the sexual temptations, the the anger, all sorts of things. Look, this church in Corinth, there are people who, they're able to flee these temptations. They're able to, wow, what a God that they serve that helps them or allows them to be able to flee temptation, to not give in to idolatry. When they, if, if they were to have lived like this, if they would live like this, if we would live like this, if we would, 
love and, and be unselfish and, and flee temptations, then guess what that does? That just makes God bigger. It glorifies God to other people. It testifies of his wowness. You see, the glory of God should be the governing principle in how they lived our, their lives during this situation they were going through. And it should be the governing principle in our lives. It not only is the governing principle in this situation, but in every situation that Paul has dealt with here. Now, this is going to require you to remember, to go back and to remember some of our study. Do you remember the situations that we've faced so far? Do you remember the division in the church? Remember at the beginning, some people said, well, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, and then there was a really pious group, well, I'm of Jesus. You know, you could see them with their big black covered Bibles, I'm of Jesus. And so there were these divisions in the church. Well, you know what? Divisions don't reflect the glory of God. Divisions don't reflect the power of the gospel to do what? To bring unity. You remember how the church had allowed there to be sin, and sin became the reputation of the church? That doesn't reflect the glory of God in holiness. Wait a minute, I thought you were people that, and, and there's, a, there's a, a man in your church who's sleeping with his father's wife, and you guys are all good with it? Remember that situation? It doesn't reflect a, the character of God. It detracts from it. Remember the situation where they took each other to the court? You know what that doesn't reflect? That doesn't reflect God's forgiveness. That reflects some people who had vendettas against each other. Oh, I, and I think I used Nick and I as an example. Oh, Nick took, wants to take, he's upset. Oh, I'm going to take him to court. That doesn't reflect glo the glorious forgiveness of God. And we haven't gotten there yet, but remember in chapter 15, or we haven't gotten there, but coming up in chapter 15, there are going to be some believers that deny the bodily resurrection. Which what? That detracts from the glory of God because it, it's like God, sin wins and, and God can't redeem our bodies. All throughout this book, in every situation of life, and we can relate to a lot of these situations, can we not? Every situation of life, our goal, our governing principle should be the glory of God, his wowness. Do you remember Paul said multiple times in this letter to, to the Corinthians, he said, specifically in, in this chapter 8 in, through chapter 11, verse 1, he said, look, the reason why I did these things was for the sake of the gospel. He said, I did that so that some might come to faith in Christ. I did this so that others may be strengthened in their faith to Christ. You see, the glory of God is a big deal. We should, we should reflect God's wowness, believers, Bereans. We should all reflect God's wowness in life. Why? Because it has an effect. It has an effect. It, 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 it shines a light out, or not shines a light, but it shines something out there to other people that says, wow, this God that they say that they serve, man, they're really a changed person. Or, or oh, they, they really, they love me. Man, and I haven't been the, the most, the kindest person to them, or, or you know, your neighbor there with, who put the fence up, right? 
man, they're still really kind to me. You see, the glory of God is what should be our governing principle in every situation of life. Secondly, not only in every situation, but that goes, it should be for every person. And he specifically, uh, we see that in verses 23 through verse 30 here. He addresses both groups of people. Do you remember the two people that were kind of going at each other? There were those that were called, uh, there were those that had the weak conscience and those that were the strong conscience. Now, he addresses the strong conscience folks, the able conscience in verses 23 and verse 24. He says this to them. All things are lawful, lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, does that verse, do you remember that verse? This is the second time that he's brought this up. So apparently, this was a favorite little jingle of some of these people in this church. They were bringing this up to justify their actions. Because back in chapter 6, they were using it to justify their immorality. Well, you know, my body has needs for food, and what do we do? We just feed our body, for, feed its need. It's lawful, it's what the body's for. So if my body has an inordinate desire, a sexual desire, I'm just going to feed it. They use that as an excuse to justify. Well, he uses that same, Paul brings that back up here, so apparently they had been using that here too. Because these with the stronger conscience, they had correct theological knowledge that idols were nothing. And that food offered to the idols was nothing too. Matter of fact, he mentions multiple times in, this, uh, in these three chapters, or in these two, uh, these two chapters, chapter 8, 9, and these three chapters, excuse me, he mentions that the, that the food is the Lord and the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. He says food's a gift from God. And so he he doesn't say they were wrong. They had correct the, theological knowledge, and, and, and this food was just a gift from God. They were right. But they had tried to use this jingle to justify their actions. But we're told here that the standard, the standard is not what is permissible. The standard is what's profitable for the glory of God. Verse 31. And what is profitable is love. What's profitable is selfishness. Selflessness, not selfishness. And then verse 24, it recaps all of this and it says, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. If they were able to love like that, if they were able to give up their rights, if they were able to love their brothers, everyone in that church would have been like, wow. And those onlookers in that city, that pagan city of Corinth would have been like, wow. Their God is able to unify them. That's pr- that guy is willing to give up his right. Wow. How does that happen? You see what the glory of God, you see why this should be a governing principle in our lives? Not, but it wasn't just for these folks that had the strong conscience. Secondly, he addresses those that have the weaker conscience. Now, again, we, this goes back to chapter 8, verse 7. Verse, chapter 8, verse 7 says, Through former association with idols, there are these brothers who eat, um, eating the food, they eat it as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So the word weak here isn't pejorative. It just simply means that they're con- they have a different conscience due to their past and, and certain associations. So their conscience was unable to go eat at these temple, temple restaurants. They equated it to idolatry. 
And so I believe it's these folks that are addressed in the next two verses, verses 25 and 26, which says this. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. And here's Psalm 24, verse 1 again. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, the reason I believe that verse 25 and verse 26 is addressing the weak consciences is because those that would eat the meat wouldn't be told not to raise any question. They didn't have any question. They just would have eaten it. But here, Paul says, don't raise any question on the grounds of conscience. So what I think he's doing is I think he's addressing these folks that have the weak conscience, and this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, don't make an issue out of something if it's not an issue. He's not asking them to violate their conscience. He's not doing that. Nowhere in this passage, and these three chapters, nor in Romans 14, which I'll address here in a little bit, nowhere does Paul ever say that they were wrong or that they should violate their conscience. Their conscience was just calibrated differently. Their conscience was just different than these with the stronger consciences, so to speak. So what I think Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, whatever's sold in the market, don't go looking for trouble. Don't go looking for a way, you know, to, to, to stir up something in the church because that doesn't magnify a love for God that a Jesus community is supposed to have either. And so this addresses both people. This glorify, this principle to glorify is for every person. And then what I think he does is he gives a real-life illustration. I think it's a real-life illustration of something that happened in Corinth in verses 27 through verse, the first half of uh, verse 29. Let me read those. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Here's what I think, here's why I think he's addressing both groups. Because when he writes you, he says there in verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you are disposed to go, that word is the plural form of you. Like if you're from the South, y'all. He says, if y'all are invited to go. Now, it makes sense and again, we don't, the Corinthians, as they read this, would have been like, oh, that's, what, that's how we apply this situation. So they would have known all the details. We don't have all the details, and we don't have to have all the details to know the point. But I think what, what make it, this makes sense, because at some point, brothers and sisters with differing consciences, so like if, if, I, had, if I had the weak conscience and Nick had the strong conscience and uh, Johnny was throwing a party at his house, and we both would have been invited, we both could have gone, this would make sense because at some point, both these types of consciences would have been invited over to the same party, the same house, the same meal. And as they go to this together, so Nick and I, Nick, I'll pick you up at five, off we go, be at, at you know, Johnny's at the Kosicks at six. We're both going, we have different consciences, and we're going to that. This makes sense. They're, they did life together. Acts 2 is really clear about that. They did all this life together, and it makes sense that at some point they would have gone to a party, a meal together, somebody's house together. 
So I think that's the context of what's happening here. And first, what he does in verse 27, he says the weak conscience folks are, are um, they're told, don't ask. Don't make an issue about where the meat came from. What he just told them the previous, just a minute ago. And then he addresses in this illustration the stronger conscience people, brother in verse 28. And he says there, if someone, and he doesn't identify who the someone is, and there's a lot of debate. I mean, I could, I've got like eight commentaries on 1 Corinthians, and they all have a different opinion of what this is all about. It, if someone, okay, says this meat is offered to idols, and again, it doesn't identify the someone, and it doesn't identify why they would even bring it up. But if they say, hey, look, this main course was connected to an idol sacrifice, then what do you do? You don't eat it. So Nick and I are on our way over to Johnny's house, and someone, let's say we get there, and someone brings it up. I don't know who would do that or why they would do, it, do that. The Corinthians knew, but in our illustration, we don't know. Or our, where we are, we don't know. But if someone came up and, and said, hey, guys, just want you to know that these ribs that Johnny's cooking today, guess what? He bought those over at Utsi's today. And guess what that means? They were offered to the pagan god, you know, Iron Man earlier today. You know, you just can't eat those. So we go, illustration, we go to the party. Nick, I'm the weak conscience. I'm not looking for trouble. I'm not, at, I'm not going in saying, Johnny, where'd you get this meat from? You got it from where? <gasps> I'm not causing trouble. But let's say we're at the party and someone comes up and says, hey, guys, this Fran comes up. Fran comes up and says, hey, guys, man, I'm really looking forward to this meat. They got some really good cuts of meat over at Utsi's today. And Nick goes, oh. And I say, I can't eat the food. Nick would go, okay, I won't eat it either. So he, he takes both people and he uses this illustration here. And he says, don't make trouble love your brother. And you know what, brothers and sisters, this really makes sense. It really is the, this is the, this is the right solution because the weaker conscience loves by not making trouble and the stronger conscience loves by refraining from eating. Guess what? God's glory wins. Either way. That's what life should look like. That's how it should be. That's how we should be. And then, there are two rhetorical questions in verse 29, the second half of verse 29 and verse 30. This is what the Bible says here. For why should my liberty, and I think he's talking here obviously to the strong conscience person, but for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Actually, he's talking to both. And if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? You know what? I think these are natural questions for one who knows that the food, isn't, the food issue isn't an issue. I mean, why, in other words, let's put it in our vernacular. Why should Nick not eat the, the ribs because of my conscience? I mean, he knows theologically that God's fake. He knows theologically that nothing like supernatural happens to the food and that some sort of gets some pink pixie dust on it and then people eat it and they start convulsing and then they become like these, you know, False God followers. That's not what happens. So the question might come up naturally, why, why should I liber limit my liberties and my freedoms for somebody else? 
And the answer to this is, I think these are rhetorical questions, and the answer isn't your liberty isn't really determined by their conscience. You know what your liberty is determined by? God's glory. It's determined by love. And it's determined by unselfishness because they're rooted in their, and reflect the glory of God. So friends, in life, when we go through our, our day-by-day lives and, and, and we're, we're living life out, we, we should. It's, it's not about limiting our freedom because somebody else's conscience. It's about, it's about the glory of God. That's the motivating factor for all of us. And then... We read in chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is, this example, this foundation governing principle, third of all, was modeled by, P- by Paul, but really, he just modeled Jesus' example. The glory of God is foundational for us to model in all of life, just as Jesus modeled. Now, I want to end today by making a few applications, right? And I'm going to state them in the negative, but you'll see that we should imitate Jesus. The ability or the freedom to express our rights as believers isn't the standard. Let me say that again. The ability or freedom that we have to express our rights isn't the standard. Remember in chapter 9, Paul's motto was this, to the Jew I became a Jew, and to the outside the law I became outside the law, and to the weak I became what? Weak. So then what Paul was saying was that in certain Jewish settings, he wouldn't eat bacon. Now that's hard for us to understand, isn't it? We were just talking about this in life group. How do you not eat bacon? I mean, it's like, the sixth food group by itself, or whatever. Fourth food group, whatever, however many food groups there are. It's one all by itself. But Paul said, look, when I'm in this setting, I'm not eating bacon. But when I'm in this setting, no big deal. I'll eat bacon. When I'm in this setting, I'm going to wash my hands, and I'm going to wash myself up a certain way. But in this setting... Man, I'm coming right in the house and sitting down, and I ain't washing because I'm starving, and I'm going to eat right away. It's not that big of a deal. He had the right to eat bacon. He had the certain rights, but he would give up that right out of love for the gospel. Really, why? Because that's what glorifies God. Our right or the freedom that we have or the ability to express our rights isn't the standard. That's not the standard, friends. That's not your standard today. Well, I have the right. Let me give a modern example. This is one right that we, that we as Americans love, and that's the freedom of what? Speech. We love that right, and it's a good right. I'm not putting the right down. I'm not. But as American citizens, we love that right. We can post, we can share, or we can like on so- social media anything we want uh, on the social media platform. We have every right to post our personal political or social opinion, opinion on any given topic. We have every right to do that. But as a heavenly citizen, is what you're about to post or to spread through sharing another, one's, another person's post or liking another person's post, which inevitably shares it too and 
everybody knows that you like it. it. Others can see that. Is that going to be profitable to the love, to magnify the love and the patience and the kindness and the mercy of God just as Jesus would do? I recently was at lunch with somebody. We were talking about, it was a political issue. We were talking about this political issue, and this person said to me, I had it all queued up, ready to go, and I wanted to hit submit on a Facebook post, but I didn't. And I said, well, why not? Because his heavenly citizenship trumped his earthly citizenship, and what he was about to post, about to post, wasn't something that was going to magnify the love. It just probably all it would have, would have done was made more polarization. It would have just... It just wouldn't have been the best thing. And I thought, man, that's a great, I'm glad you did that. Good for you. Why? Because the glory of God is more important than personal rights, expressing our personal rights. Second, our personal conscience isn't the standard either. In every church, when you take differing peoples and differing genders and differing upbringings and cultures and age groups, there's, a bo- there's bound to be differences. I mean, this church here, there were, in this specific example, there were people with, a, with, with one conscience and one with another. In a similar situation, Paul writes this about this in Romans 14. Listen as I read. He says, Romans 14, verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who doesn't eat. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. See the point there? The weak conscience isn't the standard and the strong conscience isn't the standard. We should do what with each other? We should be welcoming of, of each other. We should be, that word is the same word as the word acceptance. We should be accepting of each other in a family of God with all of our differences. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one person, here. this is, what, this is another thing they differed over. Verse 5, one person esteems one day is better than another while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then we skip all the way down to verse 13, and it says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean, because their conscience is different. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. But, or or, or what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy and all sorts of things we could think in the Holy Spirit. Very same, similar situation. And Paul says, hey, look, to the Roman believers, look, you guys see things differently. 
hey, Bereans, you may see things differently, but guess why we should act towards each other? We should be welcoming of each other. We should be accepting of each other. This reflects the glory of God. Now, there are times when we will differ on certain things, and some people like traditions, you know, holidays. There's many things we can have strong opinions on even. And just because, though, that we have the right to express those opinions, just because doesn't mean that our standard, that our, first of all, that we should, should, should express them, and then second, we need to remember that our conscience isn't the standard. Our opinion isn't the standard. Now, right along with that, the next thing we learn from Paul's example is that some things are more important than others. Not everything is as important as everything else. If everything was important, then nothing is important. There are some things that we really shouldn't fight about, but there are some things that we shouldn't budge on either. For instance, in this situation here that we've been talking about the last many weeks, it's more important for you to, for you to choose loving your brother over eating a ribeye steak. That's important. We don't budge on that. We don't budge on love. But we can budge on giving up that right to eat it, right? Listen to this in Galatians chapter, in, in, in the, from the book of Galatians, I think it's chapter 2. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his faith, for what he did was very wrong. This is Paul speaking about his brother Peter, right? And when he, arri- when he first arrived... Peter ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with these Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray. In this situation, Paul went to the mattresses with Peter because it was a first-level gospel issue. Peter withdrew from some of the Gentile believers because these Judaizers, these people who believed that you had to be circumcised to be in the family of God, they held a wrong biblical position. And Peter, had, in, the, in appearance, had then supported their doctrine by not eating with the Gentiles that he once ate with. Therefore, essentially what he was doing was he was supporting them, saying that circumcision is required to be part of the family of God, thereby nullifying the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. And so what what does Paul do? Paul says, he got right up in his faith, and he says, you're wrong. You're off. You better shape up, Peter. What's the point? Sometimes you do have to go to war. Sometimes you do have to put your foot down. But we're not to make everything an issue, uh, you know, an issue, a hill to die on. And so we're able to give up our rights. We don't compromise on, on, on the gospel, period, no matter what. We don't compromise that it's only, you know, faith alone, grace alone. We don't, we don't compromise on the solace. But there are some things that we can give up, like eating a ribeye. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, 
he modeled this for them because it's what he saw in Jesus. I mean, just think about Jesus for a minute. You know, it wasn't, he wasn't supposed to be the one, you know, Jewish people weren't supposed to be, have any conversation or any audience with Samaritan people. But yet, what did Jesus do? He went out of his way to go to a well to meet a Samaritan woman. That wasn't kosher. Do you remember the Pharisees as Jesus is, in the, is teaching in the temple, right? And what do the Pharisees do? They bring in this woman and they throw her down on the ground. And he, and he says, this woman, we just caught her in the act of adultery. We just caught her in bed with somebody else. What do you say about that? You know, what was his response? His response wasn't condemning her. I mean, he wasn't condoning her sin. He didn't condemn her. And you know how he, all of the spiritual leaders ended up leaving that room, and she and he was, were left there together. How did he treat that woman caught in adultery? You see, Jesus modeled love. Jesus modeled long-suffering and, and selflessness. And Paul was saying, look, I saw this in the life of Christ. That's why I modeled it to you. And he says, brothers and sisters, you need to model this as well. So let's remember that Jesus is the greatest example of loving. He is the greatest example of living a selfless life and he's the greatest example of fleeing temptation. It might sound cliche, but isn't it, it's not wrong, and isn't it good for each one of us to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? That's a good thing to ask ourselves. You see, Jesus is the better model for us as believers, isn't he? And by the way, friends, you can be this model, just like Paul was, because you have been given new hearts, and you have the Holy Spirit that indwells you. You've been rescued from the power and the penalty of sin, and so therefore you can't. You're not going to be perfect. Sometimes you're going to give in, and you're going to hit that post thing on the internet or the whatever social media platform, and you're going to be like, oh, I wish I hadn't. Sometimes you're going to Assert your rights in a certain situation where you don't have to, but you do because you want to. Sometimes you're going to be unloving instead of choosing to defer your love for somebody else. We're not going to be perfect, but let me tell you this. We can be imitators of Christ just as Paul the imperfect was too. Because we have new hearts. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so friends, this, the point of today's teaching is that the glory of God should be our bottom line, our default, that should be uh, what we model in our lives. It, is the, it should be the governing principle of, of, of how we live, the glory of God. So question, how's it going? How's it going? Let's pray.